Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm doing this. We're in the wrong places and my head is huge. Uh, We could use some good news. What that guy's doing is quite amazing. Here's the bad news. I went on the air uh, 10 o'clock, 5,838 cases, now up to 6,135 in the time that I've been on, 297 cases up. That's what we know right now with the weak testing that we have so far. Probably Testing is inadequate. The number is fake. Uh, At some point, I'll show you a graph tonight that shows this wickedly dramatic upswing in cases that makes it sound like, holy cow, is this thing spiking? But the whole beginning of the curve is artificial because we haven't been testing. We know this is going to happen. The cases will continue to go up. That's why we have to do all of these precautionary things that they're telling us to do, Don. People need to get that. So before you kick me out of here, I just have to say um, I appreciated your conversation today, what you're doing for your, your kids, your family, your mom. You're a good man. That's oh. all I have to say in, Thank in, a, in this crisis. You're a good friend. Uh, we're all doing what we can. And a big part of that is staying away uh, from everybody else. But like that guy Menino that you just had on yeah. and his partner, Babu, in the worst of times, we will see yeah. the best of people. And stop being jealous of your brother. He's doing a good job. I'll take I am it away. so proud. <laughs> I am so proud. As long as he looks the way he does, I'll never be jealous of him a day in my life. No, he's doing great. So right. are you. D. All Lemon, right. thank you. I'll see you later. Hello, everybody. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to a special midnight supersized edition of Primetime. Here's the latest. Don't be surprised. All 50 states are now in the corona crisis together. We knew it would be this way. We know it is spreading quickly. That's what it does. Spreads like a common cold, hits like pneumonia. And we also know that if people don't surrender the me to the we and stay home, it will get overwhelming soon. Most pressing, we know now most states don't have the capacity to treat the cases expected. They know that. What is the White House doing about it? Big question. We're also going to get insight tonight from doctors who've been treating coronavirus patients. What's it like? What are they seeing firsthand? What is the experience for people who get sick, young, old, compromised? Does the government seem to get the reality they're seeing? How, how not? And help may soon be on the way economically. But when? Is it enough? Is it a part of a bigger plan? My friends, we know the questions. We have to wait on the answers. But here's what we know. We either get through it together or not at all. So what do you say? Let's get after it. West Virginia was the lone holdout. Now they are the 50th and final state to report a coronavirus case within their borders. Now, what does perspective demand? Of course, it was going to be everywhere. It's spreading through communities. We still have a very low death toll. Now, that number 
we can be basically sure of. Are people dying of other complications that aren't being put in the mix? We don't have real reason to be suspicious of that. But we know the case number has to be very, very low. Why? They haven't been testing. We are far beyond the point of contact tracing. It's community spread. So look, as more tests come available, what are you going to see? Exponential growth in cases. Well, why isn't that scary? Why aren't I more scared? First of all, this is not the plague, okay? And second of all, you know what you're going to see with these huge numbers? The huge index of recoveries, 80% is the expected percentage. And we've been seeing that in other places and here. People get better. Some are even asymptomatic, okay? Now, on the other side of the country from West Virginia, we're having one of the most vast American experiments uh, going underway to slow down the spread. Talking about California. Shelter in place. Very extreme. What does it mean? How is it being observed? Nick Watt has the very latest from coast to coast. Confirmed cases now in all 50 states. More than 100 dead nationwide. Unprecedented times, unprecedented measures. The president also has us inventorying um, what you all would understand as field hospitals or MASH hospitals that can be deployed very quickly. Two Navy hospital ships could soon be deployed, defense officials tell CNN. There's a Federal Reserve of medical supplies, which is really our last uh, best hope. You can't buy a ventilator, uh, which is very important because most of these people have respiratory illnesses. Uh, We're shopping for ventilators all around the globe. Federal officials warn there aren't enough gowns, gloves and masks stockpiled. We would urge construction companies to donate their inventory of N95 masks to your local hospital. In San Francisco's Bay Area, 7 million woke to a draconian dawn, now allowed out only for essential needs. Three neighboring counties, nearly another million people, will join that lockdown tomorrow night. Tuesday afternoon, New York City's mayor said he might issue a similar order within 48 hours. New Yorkers should be prepared right now for the possibility of a shelter-in-place order. New York's governor, not so keen. You say shelter-in-place if, if you stay in New York City. I'll go stay with my sister in Westchester. I don't think you can really do a policy like that just in one part of the state. Uh, so I don't think it works. Good morning, Brooklyn's DA has stopped prosecuting low-level offenses that don't jeopardize public safety. The Brooklyn Nets star Kevin Durant announced he's now tested positive. And Tuesday, while touting a $1 trillion economic stimulus plan, the Secretary of the Treasury reportedly warned Republican lawmakers that without intervention, this virus could have upped the unemployment rate to a staggering 20%. Nationwide, a new normal continues to unfold. Uber and Lyft have stopped all pool and shared rides. In Vegas, the Palazzo and the Venetian now closing until at least April 1st. The airlines taking a hit. Nearly a million fewer passengers in one day compared to a year ago. This is worse than 9-11. For the airline industry, this is, uh, they, they are almost ground to a halt. Meanwhile, Amazon is hiring another 100,000 workers to meet online shopping demand. 
And late in the day, a pretty stunning announcement from Orange County. Orange County, home to more than three million people just south of Los Angeles. They just announced they are banning all public and private gatherings, no matter how many people are at them. They are telling everybody to stay six feet away from anybody who is not a family member. So all eyes will be on California, on Orange County and on San Francisco to see if people really do obey these new measures to try and keep us all apart. Chris. All right, Nick Watt, thank you very much. Appreciate the storytelling here, keeping us up to date. What an interesting question we're facing, huh? Do you care enough about anybody else to do what you're being asked to do? I'll remind you, you see it all over the Internet. A generation ago, people lined up, lied about their age, lied about their health in order to serve this country and go away away to hell for years to fight a world war, never knowing if they're coming home. You're being asked to stay home and sit on the couch, which most of us do any chance we get. And it's a hard call. Come on. And now here's the good news. You're going to get some time to think about this because we don't know what's going to happen. All we know is that if we don't try, we've got big trouble. Don't listen to me. Listen to the man at the top, Dr. Anthony Fauci. It probably would be several weeks and maybe longer before we know whether we're having an effect. Now, look, why does he have to pick his words and speculate? Because the man standing next to him, also known as the president of the United States, say, oh, we're counting down. It was 15 days, 14. Now we're at 13 and then we'll be done. I don't know why he's saying that. You don't know how long this is going to take. Look at the UK. Everybody said, oh, why don't we do what they're doing? You know, kind of herd, you know, get some herd uh, immunity to this. Let it just go everywhere. Don't close anything down. Because of how many people they would have die. And once they started listening to science, they are not doing that anymore. The whole point is to try to preserve us from pain. So what's the biggest part of our struggle? Getting you and me to realize it's real. It's not political. I know Trump told you it was a hoax. He was lying. He does not say that anymore. But when you see scenes like this in San Francisco, this is shelter in place. This is trying to do your best to not be around people. Hmm. My next guest actually helped write the book on fighting pandemics in this country when he was secretary of HHS, Health and Human services. Mike Levitt, thank you very much. Good to have you. I see that you are doing what we should be doing. You're staying put in place at home. Now, uh, first question, or let's do it a little bit uh, as dialogue. I will play the suspicious American. You people overplay everything, especially you guys in the public health sector. Uh, You exaggerate curves. You exaggerate things for effect. And now you're shutting down the economy and you want me to hide from something that's basically uh, a bad case of the flu. Why? Well, Chris, it's because pandemics happen. Uh, They're a biologic fact. They're part of history. And when they do, they reshape the economics, the politics and the sociology across the world. The problem is they happen far enough apart that one generation forgets. Uh, And we're at the place now where our generation is having this experience. And I must say, I think as a culture, we have the best chance in human history to avoid the catastrophe that has befallen other uh, generations before because of the technology we have, the communications we have, and the capacity 
uh, to understand and to know about what is uh, about to about to hit the United States. So you have the, the can versus the should, right? Or the can versus the will. You're right. We have technology to communicate information and to stay remote and yet still stay in touch, right? Virtually, we can still do what we want to do, even if physically we're in one place. In fact, we've worked very hard to get to this place, have we not? But then you get the will, the should. People are selfish. And we're seeing that Americans are surprisingly fragile also. One, one person goes out to buy a lot of toilet paper, and the next thing you know, there's none left uh, in a lot of population centers. So how do you deal with the will and generating the collective consciousness to do this? Well, part of this is human nature. We have to acknowledge that there has been skepticism about this. The problem is that anything you say before a pandemic actually happens seems alarmist. Uh, after it begins to unfold, anything you said or anything that's been done seems inadequate. And that's the phase we're in right now. There are a lot of people out shopping uh, in line tonight who wish they'd have done it a couple of weeks ago. But they are, in fact, beginning to comport with the rules. I think what's happening in this country is remarkable. Shutting down entire sports leagues, uh, standing aside from traditions and, and weddings and graduations and people coming together to do it. Are they all doing it in a sense of just, is anybody pleased about this? Absolutely not. But we're doing a hard thing. And we, and we need to acknowledge that this is historic and we can make a difference that's never happened in human history before. Now, first of all, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show tonight is my director sent you, Ellie, sent your quote. Uh, and I love that quote. Anything you do before a pandemic is seen as alarmist. Anything you do after a pandemic is seen as inadequate. That is so true. And we will see that again here because we don't have enough collective buy-in. And yet I'm intrigued by what you say about what we're pulling off. How are we doing? Well, as, and as Tony Fauci said, we won't know with certainty for a while. But we're entering a very crucial two-week period where we have a chance to flatten this curve. Why two weeks? And it's so we do that. We simply are not going to have enough ventilators. We're not going to have enough capacity if we allow this virus to take the natural course that it will. We're, do we're at war with a virus, and we can only win this war collectively. But we can win it. And I think over the course of the next two weeks, we're going to have to all do our part. And there's something for everyone to do. Every family needs a pandemic plan. Every city, county, church, college, school, businesses, we all have a role here. The thing that's unique about a pandemic is that it is so local. Right. Uh, it, in, anyone who believes that the federal government can come riding to its rescue in a pandemic, will be tragically disappointed. So, two Not questions. because of will or wallet. It's just impossible for the federal government to provide it everywhere. So we, it's an, a uniquely a, a local emergency. Understood and agreed. Two quick questions. One, why two weeks? Uh, if you're in a real war and you don't know how long it takes and really your best defense is staying apart so that people who are sick resolve their case without spreading it to someone else, why two weeks? And while I, I agree, it can't be all about the federal government, especially not in this particular administration in terms of what they're set up to do well. But the idea of using the military and the Corps of Engineers to build 
temporary capacity seems to be a no-brainer, but it's not happening. So why two weeks? And why isn't the military, specifically the Corps of Engineers, everywhere in the population centers where they're saying we don't have capacity, helping? So let's start with why two weeks. Most of what we know about pandemics comes from studying the past, looking at the history of previous viruses that have terrorized the world. And one thing we know is that left to their own device, there will be this spike right. where over the course of time, it will, it will be like a hockey stick. And it's about six weeks long if left to its own device. And it very rapidly outstrips the capacity. The beginning of that, of that peak is this two-week period, two to three weeks, okay. if we can keep from spiking. That's the reason. Now, in terms of the federal government, look, the federal government has a critical role here. Vaccines, being able to help state and local governments with money. They do have military assets that can be deployed. We have a lot of assets and every it ought to be all hands on deck here. And and I, I think in time, as this begins to be deployed, it can be. One thing I will say that when we were developing the initial pandemic plan, one of the things we had to be conscious of is that we do have national defense in- interests going on at the same time. Uh, we, we, this would be a time when a, a sinister enemy uh, could attack and make things very difficult. And so we have to be doing more than one thing at a time. And I, that is not the only reason. I'm not suggesting that's the reason that, that they haven't deployed them in that way. But it is another consideration. Mm. Secretary Mike Levitt, thank you very much. Appreciate the perspective. Thank you, Chris. Let's take this discussion to a doctor who knows firsthand the capacity crisis at play. Now, her perspective, she treated the very first coronavirus patient in America. She's now arming patients with the knowledge, but also the tools to care for themselves if there isn't enough room and resources, a.k.a. capacity. What a great idea. Let's get inside it next It's interesting. You know, it's been two months since we treated the first coronavirus patient. Does it feel like it's been two months? And now that we've seen more than 6,000 cases, and I keep telling you, I don't buy that number. I think it's way low because we weren't testing. But doctors, to be sure, are fighting an uphill battle. We know there's not enough tests. We know we haven't been testing, which is why I don't trust the number. But more importantly... We know we don't have resources even for the cases we do know about and that we expect. So people are looking for other ways to help. One such person is Dr. Amy Compton Phillips. She actually treated that first patient and joins us now. How are you doing, Doc? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris. So uh, let's deal with a couple of different points of paranoia. First one is if you get coronavirus, that's it. You're going to be lucky to make it out. It is a painful and slow demise. Um, What have you seen in terms of because you see online, you see how afraid young, healthy people are about this. Um, And what's the reality? So the reality is that four out of five people are perfectly fine. It's like they get a bad cold or they get a mild flu and they get over it and they keep going about their lives. Um, But about 20 percent, which is a lot of people, Mm -hmm. get bad enough that they end up in the hospital and have to receive care there. Um, And about uh, 5 percent of those people um, end up actually in the ICU and so pretty severely ill. 
And then you have what we believe will be the mortality rate. But within that number, so not only do you have about 98 percent of the people survive this, but the people that wind up in that margin that, uh, God forbid, don't, you have very specific traits, usually elderly or compromised, unless we screw up capacity to a place where we start having all these unintended consequences. And that's where your second area of brilliance comes in. You know capacity is not going to be met. You hear people like my brother say, you know, the governor of New York, I can't meet it. I can't build it fast enough. I can't source it fast enough. I can't find the equipment. It's not going to happen. You found a potential solution. How? So we're trying really hard to do several things because, um, one, we know exactly like your brother's saying, we don't have a capacity in our hospitals and we don't have the equipment to keep our own caregivers, our own nurses and doctors safe and healthy. You know, we don't have the PPE, the masks Mm. and the gowns to keep people safe. So when we first started seeing this, we said, we've got to do something different. This is the 21st century. We don't have to treat this like we did the Spanish flu back in 1918. What can we do that's different? And so we're doing a few things. One is if you're worried about your symptoms, we actually have a symptom checker, a chat bot online that you can go in and see whether or not you maybe need help. Mm -hmm. If you triage out that you need help, well, you can click on it and do it actually a virtual visit. Um, And so we can actually have a caregiver and a patient, um, you know, chat and see whether or not you need something more. If you need testing, we can then send you for drive-through testing. Um, And if it seems like you have the symptoms consistent with the germ, because we don't get test results back for a while now, it's like three to four day turnaround time, um, we'll actually send you home with an oxygen sensor and a thermometer and be able to monitor you from a bank of nurses watching monitors um, in your own home so that you don't have to be admitted to the hospital. How many people can you watch? Well, at the moment, we're watching about 100, and we think we can do about 4,000. 4,000. And then if somebody gets into a place where they are severe enough to have to come in. Now, what do you see this as? uh, Help me understand how this can change the face of dealing with the flow. Well, um, so with the flu, you probably wouldn't need it. But the thing that's a little bit different about COVID-19 is that pneumonia that um, Mm. that you can be cooling a lot, you know, just tooling along, doing okay, and then all of a sudden crash, get much worse. And the the symptom of that is the increasing shortness of breath, particularly when you move around and the way you can diagnose it. Just like, you know, you often don't know you have high blood pressure mm-hmm. unless you take your, your blood pressure. Some people don't realize their oxygen levels starting to fall unless they measure it. And so that that oxygen sensor can start letting people know, like, mm, you know, we don't want you to fall off the cliff. We want you to come in mm-hmm. when you're when you're still like this. But we're seeing some signs of it going downhill. Is the software adaptable to other states or do you have a special system? Um, it is something that could be done anywhere. All right. uh, so it's just really setting up the infrastructure to allow for it. I'm going to spread the message. We're going to do it online. I know you've been doing some media, but we're going to magnify it. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, you are what we call an American. You are someone who is helping us figure (laughs) out how to make it through. God bless and thank you for using your brain and your skills to help us get better. Thanks so much, Chris. Boy, oh boy. I told you in the worst of times, you're going to see the best of us come out. What an innovative idea. 4,000 people they can monitor at one time. Imagine what that will do to capacity. Now, in terms of measuring the effect, got to look at the markets. They bounce back. Why? They like that a lot of money is going to be thrown at people in America. Why? Because it makes a recession a little less likely. Why? 
gets complicated. So we're going to talk to somebody who understands the economics inside out. What are we doing that will make the economy worse? What will it take for it to be better? How long between the two? Next. Quick thing, when I was just talking to that doctor who's spending all this time trying to figure out how to help the rest of us, she says she's starting to work with her own people in the hospital. Guess on what? Making their own masks. That's how short supply is. Maybe we're going to have to have people out there who know how to do this. We're going to have to teach each other how to make masks. I'm going to find out more about it. I'm going to get you the information. You want a way to help? That's a way. Now, what's another way to help? The federal government says cutting a check for every American. It's no longer a fringe idea. It's front and center because of this crisis. What would it mean? So right now there's a one trillion with a T dollar bailout on the table. That's what the Treasury Secretary wants. Uh, It would be bigger than any other bailout we've ever seen in American history. Two uh, on the chart that you're going to see came when my next guest uh, was the director of the National Economic Council. Okay, Gene Sperling. Uh, I know him very well, actually, for most of my life. He used to work uh, with my father. He went on to much bigger things uh, as a big shot in the Obama administration. Gino, it's always great uh, to see you. First of all, uh, let's deal with the big macro on this before we get into more of the details of the plan. I don't understand, many will say, why? Why all this money? Why does this have to be so big? Just don't shut things down. You guys are forcing us into a recession. Well, because, Chris, I mean, this is the unfortunate news. This is the worst pullback in economic spending and economic activity we've seen in our lives and maybe since the Great Depression. And think about that. When we've had downturns before recessions, yeah, there were people hurting. Some people lost their jobs. Some people lost their their raises. Some people uh, feared they would be next. But a whole lot of other people went on spending, uh, uh, traveling, doing all the things. We've never seen a moment in our lives where every single person in our country is pulling back and we are just absolutely closing down entire shops and industries. My heart bleeds so much for the people, the waitresses, the waiters, the people in the food industry and other service industry who are just losing their job by government mandate, no fault of their own. So you've got a dramatic fall in economic activity. But as you've talked about on this show often, as you were talking about with with your brother last night, you know, this is not a market issue. This is a real economy issue affected by a healthcare crisis. If you don't solve the healthcare crisis, if you don't flatten the curve, if you don't have the type of testing that provides certainty, you know, the economic input you can put in. It can cushion the blow, but it cannot solve it. It cannot give the confidence that we know where the bottom is or how long this lasts. You know, the UK went away from what they were going to do, but they said, look, uh, let's go for herd immunity here. And yeah, there are going to be more casualties, but you know what? That happens. It'll shorten the duration so that we won't have that kind of economic pain. What about that kind of calculation? Maybe the government has gone too far with this. Maybe we're doing too much and we're hurting ourselves too much economically for the benefit we'll do to us in terms of fighting the pandemic. 
you know, I'm going to listen to the experts on this, as I think we all should. But I think we as a people have the capacity to take this on. But we need to understand the market did respond well to an idea that I agree with, lots of people agree with. Give a payment to everybody, $1,000, $2,000. It's good for demand. It gets economic activity going. But, and I cannot if stress this it. enough. But yeah, and that's what I cannot stress enough. This is one tool. This has to be combined with a major package that goes to our, for a healthcare surge, to empowering state and local leaders to deal with the problems. And I, I want to make one point in particular, which is if you do not target and focus on the most hard hit Americans, nothing is going to work, including these payments. Take somebody who loses their job for 12, 16 weeks. A single payment isn't going to help them pay the rent. We need to take some dramatic efforts. Unemployment insurance. Right now, it's got huge holes in our country. If you're a gig worker, if you're a domestic worker, you often don't qualify. When you do qualify, it's going to be for a number of weeks. You get 33, 40% of your wages. We need to now make it clear it's emergency. It's going to last as long as you need it. Instead of 30, 40, 50% of your wages, it should be more 100%. We should do work sharing. You know what? We pay for it. We don't wow. worry about the deficit because you just the, the the United States Congress puts it out there. Because if you don't spend this money now to help these people, it's the right thing to do on the grounds of compassion because we love each other and we care about our neighbors. But these are the people that are hurt the most. If we help them, if we do the right thing, they're the ones who are going to spend the most. They're the ones who can be able to make their rent. Mm. These are the kind of things we have to do, and we're going to have to do more. We may have to forgive student loans. For a, lot, for a period of time. We need a moratorium on evictions. This is big. This could be the worst threat we go face for a while since the Great Depression. And we better be thinking big in the fullness of, of America of what we can do economically, not just to spur demand by sending out checks, which I think is an important tool, but by unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, expanding Medicaid, uh, uh, housing relief, more, uh, moratorium on evictions. If we don't do these type of bigger things, this needs to be part of the congressional package. And I encourage every member of Congress out there, it's good you're doing the paid checks, good. But if you don't come with a broad, bold plan on unemployment insurance, on paid sick leave, on Medicaid, on helping state and local governments, it's not going to be enough. All right. Hopefully, you know, it's part of the lesson of 2008 also. Uh, you know, they short, you shored up the markets. That was good. But there was that discussion about, well, what about the little guys? What about the people who own the houses? You know, what about what's going on with them and everything? And there seemed, it seemed to be overweighted in one direction there. This time, hopefully, it's different. And, Gene, uh, let me put a request in, you know, make it a little harder for you to say no because it's national television. But uh, as we learn more about what they're going to do, I need your help. I need to explain it to the American people. People about why this makes sense, uh, why it's worth it, why it's enough, why it's not enough. There are going to be a lot of questions because we don't even know what's going to hit us yet. And that's what makes this so different. In 2008, you knew what it was. Uh, every time something happened, every was, it was a reaction to it. This hasn't even really hit us yet in terms of the real pain that is probably weeks to come. Uh, hopefully it won't be as bad as we suspect. Gene Sperling, thank you for putting your brain and your heart thank you. to this situation. Appreciate it. All right. Now, look, virus is affecting everything. It is unbelievable. It is amazing. It is fantastical. None of us can believe this is happening right now on any level. It is bizarre. I'm with you. And it hasn't even really happened yet. And yet all of these things are happening. I get it. 
You're going to see it in our politics also. Ohio didn't vote this third Super Tuesday. Three other states did. Big wins for Joe Biden. But what does coronavirus mean for the election? Now, you know you weren't paying attention to it tonight like you were last week. Everything has changed. What will it mean for the race? Let's go live to Washington and talk about it next. All right, the quick tally on tonight, Biden three, Sanders zero. Um, The gap in Florida was as big as assumed for the vice president um, on Super Tuesday three, we'll call it. Let's get to CNN's Phil Mattingly in the CNN Election Center. Uh, Once again, I was on the wrong side of wagers about what the spread would be in Florida. I didn't think it would be as big as we saw, but it was about 40 points. What's the story of the night? Yeah, and I think that actually gets to the story of the night. It's not just that Joe Biden won all three contests tonight, sweeping Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. It's how he won them. And it really kind of mimics what we've seen over the course of the last three weeks. Take a look at Florida. As you noted, the expectation was that Joe Biden would win Florida and win Florida comfortably. But look at this map. Look at the dark blue. That's all Joe Biden blue. Joe Biden winning every single county in the state of Florida. Perhaps more impressive was what he did in Illinois. I want to flip back to 2016, show you how Bernie Sanders did a very close race with Hillary Clinton. Take a look at all this light blue. That's Bernie Sanders winning counties. Not enough to actually win the state, to win the primary, but doing well enough to make a mark. Now flip it this time around. Bernie Sanders only won one county in the state. Now, obviously, the vote day of vote in Illinois was down because Mm -hmm. of obvious issues that are going on, but it underscores how Joe Biden has really brought the coalition together. Flip over to Arizona as well, and another very big victory for Joe Biden. 60,000 votes ahead with about 70% reporting. I think Chris, when you look at tonight, it's just what we've seen over the course of the last three weeks. Joe Biden is in a place now. The party is in a place now. The primary is in a place now where it has become his race. He's become by far the prohibitive favorite. And every single uh, primary that we've looked at over the course of the last three weeks has more or less borne that out, Chris. Mm. Two new prohibitions. Uh, One, turnout. Um, What did we see tonight? It was down a little bit. But in this mood, we don't know what it's going to be like in November. Right. But if there is lower turnout, is it easy enough to say that even if Biden gets the ticket, that has to help the president? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the expectation. When you talk to Democratic sources, when you talk to Democratic campaign operatives, that's what they're concerned about. I think you talk to Trump officials and they feel like that their energy, their base, they've driven turnout in places, at least in 2016, that perhaps they hadn't seen before. I think the interesting thing about tonight, particularly given everything that's going on in the country, Mm -hmm. is in two of the states, in Arizona and in Florida, at least what we've seen so far, because of the early vote, turnout is actually up in the primary. Right. But that's because of the early vote. And I think in Illinois, it's probably a better representation of where things are today, where turnout was down fairly dramatically, at least at what we've seen to this point based on in person. I think the interesting thing going forward is going to be over the course of the last several weeks, you've seen turnout really move up for Joe Biden, which wasn't the expectation. That was the Bernie Sanders expectation. And can that be maintained? I think the other thing we all have to wonder right now is, is there going to be another primary vote anytime soon, at least one where there's in-person voting? We've already seen Georgia was supposed to be the next one up. They've already moved their primary. Other states have started to move theirs as well. So will this be the last one of the nights we can talk about this like this, at least for the time being? That and what Bernie Sanders decides to do next, kind of the big two questions outstanding. Because Chris, we're talking about Bernie Sanders. 
Look at the pledge delegates right now. Joe Biden opening up a nearly 300 delegate lead. Think about where we were at the end of February to where we are now. Joe Biden has this on lock for all intents and purposes. And the question now becomes, what's Bernie Sanders going to do? Well, and that would look, I should be standing next to you right now, right? Talking my head off in every commercial break and about 100 different things. But I'm here because our country has changed. And what is your best sense of how coronavirus is going to shape the story of the election. You know, look, I think it's anecdotal because it's early. Think about how fast things have moved. Just seven days ago, there were still sports being played in the United States of America. Now everything's shut down. Every city's shut down. The speed by which this has all occurred is head spinning. And I think politically, people are still trying to figure things out. I think one of the things when you talk to Democrats, when you talk to the Biden campaign, they say this is his moment because this is who he's pledged to be. He isn't trying to remake entire systems because people in this moment of crisis don't necessarily want their entire systems remade. They want to be able to leave Mm. their house. They want to be able to go to restaurants. They want to have a guy in the office that can do it on day one. So they feel like this tracks with what Joe Biden's message has been. Whether that ends up being the case, we'll have to wait and see in the months ahead. It does remind me of when it was Obama and uh, may he rest in peace, McCain. And when it was a national security contest, um, McCain was giving Obama all he could handle. And he said, look, I'm not an economic guy, but if you want to stay safe, I'm your guy. And then all of a sudden, it flipped to that economic crisis and the race changed. I wonder if this one plays that way as well. Phil Mattingly, thank you for the brilliance as always. So the government has a choice to make. And it's not only a hard choice, they don't have a lot of time to deal with it. We don't have the capacity to handle what's coming. What are they going to do about it? Dr. Sanjay Gupta is among those openly worried about capacity. It is amazing to think uh, that he is working 24 hours a day, but he is. What is the priority? Next. Hospitals are overwhelmed already. So how do we handle what's to come? Chief Dr. Sanjay Gupta. We're at a critical inflection point. We have the same number of cases uh, now that Italy had two weeks ago, and we have a choice to make. This is the era of coronavirus. Hospitals overcrowded in places like China and Italy, stretching resources thin and putting patients at risk. And the concern is that in a matter of weeks... That could become the United States. We are so incredibly underprepared for a major onslaught to the hospitals, which is basically now inevitable. I think we have to look at Italy and see where they, what happened to them, and I think we're in, actually in worse shape. We don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough ICU beds. According to the most recent estimates, even in a moderate outbreak, health officials estimate that 200,000 Americans will need intensive care and 64,000 will need breathing machines or ventilators. But the problem is the United States has less than 100,000 ICU beds and only about 62,000 full-featured ventilators on hand with an additional 8,900 in the national stockpile. But since we're still in flu season, many of those are already in use. And by the way, even if we got the, even if we had the 100,000 plus ventilators that we actually need, we don't have the staff to operate them. So hospitals are bracing for a rush of patients, trying to free up as much space as possible. That means getting patients who are well enough out of the ICU and canceling all elective operations. 
We just have to make this a standard across the board. In some cases, hospitals are now trying to prevent patients who are well enough from coming to the emergency room in the first place, like building tents to triage and treat potential coronavirus patients, using telehealth so that people can call in from home, and building up their testing capacity in some cases without people even having to step out of their cars. But all of this hinges on having enough supplies, which means hospitals are now rationing what they do have. My hospital, I mean, you had a mask, gloves, they were just sitting out, you could use what you needed to use. That's changed. That's right, we've had to remove many of these items from the shelves. To be clear, most people who get infected with the novel coronavirus won't need to be hospitalized. But for a small percentage of patients, the virus can be deadly. We've had uh, everyone ranging from just needing some supplemental oxygen through their nose all the way through people who are in shock and needing to be uh, on 100% oxygen on a ventilator in the ICU. When that happens, hospitals can quickly run out of space and supplies. And if staff don't have the proper protective gear, they may run out of doctors and nurses as well. But if this is really affecting an entire community, an entire state, an entire country, the world, are we ready? Do we have what we need? Well, I think we are as ready as we can be, but without knowing what the future holds, it's hard to say whether or not we're, we have enough equipment and we have what we need. I think that there are concerns, legitimate concerns, about as a nation, if we're ready to handle such an enormous pandemic. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN, New Rochelle, New York. Remember, we know what's coming. What are we going to do with it? Now, stay with us. We got new guests with insight. You must hear about what is to come. Next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.